I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to The Voice of Insurance in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. It was a great experience recording today's episode because it was the first time since the COVID-19 crisis began that I was able to do an interview face-to-face instead of on a video call. And it seemed even more poignant that this first face-to-face interview should be at Lloyd's, the only physical marketplace where insurance is traded by multiple counterparties all in the same room. Technology has been a saviour for all of us in these difficult times. But I think this interview shows that there are some elements of genuine human social interaction that it can never replace. Tasked with turning the market's performance around and driving through a revolutionary programme of reform, John Neal has needed all his charm and skills of communication to convince the market to change the way it does almost everything. Here you can see his skills to great effect. He is incredibly personable, approachable and down-to-earth, and certainly doesn't get angered by any of my more provocative questions. Or at least if he does, he doesn't show it. Instead, the main weapon he deploys is a stark honesty and candidness that is refreshing and endearing. In our time together, we discuss the Lloyd's 2021 business planning process and whether Lloyd's is striking the right balance between performance and growth, the coming revolution from the imminent Blueprint 2 reform plans, what makes a good underwriter, personal conduct and the impact of the culture survey, climate change and the insurance of fossil fuels, the potential impact of the Aon Willis merger on the market, and finally, John's personal feelings about his role. I didn't cut anything out because it's all too good to miss. I also didn't over-edit it because I wanted you to be able to feel that you too are inside number one Lime Street on the 11th floor, sitting in with John and I as the recorders are switched on and the discussion gets going. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. John, thank you so much for giving me some time to The Voice of Insurance. We know how incredibly busy you are, particularly as you've got the CEO's role and you've got John Hancock's former role. So I'll just get straight into the questions. When you bump into people on Lime Street and if they're in a bad mood and they're moaning about different things, if I said, you know, what about Lloyd's? And they say, well, you know, it's lost its buccaneering spirit. It's not like it used to be. Do you think that's true? Is that fair? Has Lloyd's lost its buccaneering spirit? And is it missing out now we've got a harder market? Do you think it's missing out on opportunities by being perhaps a bit overcautious in its 2021 business planning? 
So, Mark, it's, it's great to be talking to you, first off. It's great to be talking to you because we're actually sat in the Lloyds building, which uh, is great to be doing as well. And I like the question, what's the difference between swashbuckling, buccaneering, good business? When I think I stand back and think about what we want to achieve, the ultimate measure of success for any insurer is those two words, profitable growth. And they're in an order, actually. You need to demonstrate, first off, that you can be profitable. And when you can demonstrate you can be profitable, then you've got a right to grow. And it's quite hard to get both to work. It is the classic, how do I rub my tummy and pat my head at the same time? So I think we've had to go through a period of just right-sizing the market to get back to earn the right to grow. And that's a bit of a period we've been going through. I think we're pretty much there. And when you come out of the planning process that we're in the middle of at the moment, you'll see the market grow, we think, by about 12% in 2021, which in US dollars, I always like US dollars because the numbers sound bigger, it's about $15 billion of new business. So I think we are at that tipping point of three pretty tough years where we think the market can now actually not only see growth through rate, but also see growth through exposure. And I think if you look at one or two of the other things we're doing, I've been quite anxious to ensure that we can recapture the magic cloak of innovation. So we've had 2% of people's plans can be on innovative growth that sit outside of the overarching expectation for that particular line. We set up Syndicate in a Box to try and promote different and new style businesses to come into the market. We've stood up ILS Capital for the first time in London. Okay, we're about 10 years behind Bermuda, but we've stood it up. So I think we're trying to recapture that, but in a smart, intelligent organized way. I was impressed with the underlying combined ratio of those results uh, where you remove all the, the volatile parts. Mm. They were back to where they were in, in a golden era of results of say that started in 2005 for example. Can you keep pulling that growth lever do you think 2021? Yeah I mean the results were interesting weren't they at the half year when you sort of got under the skin of goodness me trying to address Covid and strip Covid out. And actually I should just interrupt how much of that good underlying combined is down to frequency benefits of COVID, of just lack of business activity and lack of attritional loss. Yeah, I mean, the interesting point, Mark, is is almost none, actually, having had a good look at the results. And let's be clear, we saw a seven-point improvement on the underlying combined ratio, seven points on the attritional loss ratio. That doesn't actually happen in a half year. It's almost humanly possible to achieve. I think the nature of three-year accounting at Lloyd's means that they're slow to manifest, they take longer to manifest. So I don't think that's a half-year improvement. That is the work that's been going in for two and a half years. And we saw some lead indicators at the end of last year, and we've really now been able to see what we thought we should be seeing in the results. So we're confident that that improvement will repeat through the year end. And therefore, we do feel that the market's really beginning to understand what good performance looks like. I should be clear, we can't take our foot warmly off the throat of good performance. I mean, that is something you have to do every single half year and every year. So we will continue with a theme of getting performance right. But if we can get the measures in place that determine that we are going in the right direction, then yes, we can support a market that can grow. I suppose it's just not for everybody because we've had some prominent exits and they've been citing the fact that they feel they couldn't get the growth within Lloyd's that they would have wanted as that main factor. Are you worried about those kinds of exits? Obviously, everybody's got platforms everywhere and they can write business in this room or outside it in different platforms all over the world. Do you think you're going to be selected against and some of that really good high growth, high profit business is going to go elsewhere? I don't think so. And I think we always have to be very careful what we actually say when you see departures from the market. There's been one or two that I would like to have seen stay candidly. 
And there's been quite a few in recent times where the businesses have simply been underperforming and shouldn't be here. And we should be very clear on that. If a business cannot remediate, if a business cannot demonstrate that it can get to sustainable long-term profitability, then they shouldn't be here. So I think there's different reasons. But I'd say in the main... I think there is more interest in the market than there is disinterest. And we've seen some good signs of that, haven't we? AIG choosing to repatriate and relocate some of their high net worth business here. You're beginning now to see as the press reports out through the plans, some of the growth that we're supporting and promoting. We have a very active dialogue with all of the major insurance groups around the world. You've seen it personified in our global advisory committee. So we are trying to have that dialogue to all of the insurance and reinsurance groups around the world say, actually, I think Lloyd's has a role to play in your armory of underwriting, particularly for corporate and specialty business. And my belief is that every major insurance group should want to have a capability at Lloyd's, not exclusively, but a capability. And, um, you know, I get shot every time I say this, but I step back and I look at global corporate specialty insurance and reinsurance and that's an 800 billion dollar market i think we have the potential to be 10 percent of the world's flow so that is twice the size we are today and a lot of that growth i think will come from us persuading all of the groups that operate in that space in the world that there is a value proposition in being here some of them are here some of them aren't here so great to see aig relocate some of their business great to see someone like chubb actually growing their business at lloyd's which they haven't done for a long time and great to see some interest and some new capital thinking about new businesses that might set themselves up and some of those businesses considering that lloyd's is a credible home so you'd say that some of these upscaling and increasing capacity is a vindication of what you've been up to in the last couple of years? I don't think it's a vindication necessarily of just what we've been up to. You get asked the question a lot, is Lloyd sustainable? Does it have a model that's valuable in the future of insurance and reinsurance? And I think the critical answer to that is yes. And I think the challenging few months we've seen post-COVID have illustrated that. We've seen terrific commitment to the market. We've seen very strong levels of retention and we've seen good flows of new business. This is the only insurance market in the world. Let's be honest about that. Bermuda's got amazing talent, great qualities and great skills. It's not a market. There's no market in Singapore. There's no market in Hong Kong. They are all centers and they are all valuable and they all have a role to play. The only true insurance marketplace is here in London. And the reason there's a marketplace in London is because Lloyd's is here. And I do feel that that value proposition is beginning to be understood. And part of my job, I think, coming into Lloyd's was to demonstrate that we could perform because if you can't perform, why else would you be here? That we do actually have a strategy, we do have a vision of the future, and we do have a framework culturally to set the market up for the long term. And I think that is beginning to be understood. And if we get that right, then maybe that ambition of being 10% of the world's flow will come to fruition. But to be fair, it might be my successor that realizes that rather than me. You mentioned about businesses that can't fix themselves having to be out, but do they have to be? Because Lloyd's is a marketplace. Mm. As long as they can keep posting the funds at Lloyd's to keep the central fund absolutely protected. Does it matter that much? Yeah, Mark, I think it does, because what makes Lloyd's a marketplace is this odd holy trinity of um, attributes that we have that no one else has. So we're rated. What other marketplace is actually rated as a marketplace? Standard & Poor's, AMBES, Fitch and others look at us to rate us, number one. Number two, as a market, 
we have licenses, 180 of them around the world. No one has anywhere near that number of licenses. And thirdly, the regulator has granted us permission to prudentially oversee the marketplace. So those three factors, rating, licenses and ability to regulate is what makes us unique and what makes us a marketplace and of course underpinning all of that is a brand that is so recognizable if you go around the world and you explain that the capital the insurance interest is lloyd's you don't need a second sentence to explain who you are you've just explained it in one sentence so i think it's those attributes the three plus the brand that make us a marketplace and that's what makes us different if we let any one of those go then we will have lost a little bit of the uniqueness of lloyd's and therefore we won't be who we are today well of course lloyd's didn't used to have a rating until reconstruction renewal with hindsight do you think It never really needed that rating because, of course, the rating is now another one of the things that you say has to be maintained and therefore you've got to be tough. It's a challenging question. I think it's become actually more important. And, you know, one of the other things I think we must do is demonstrate that our rating is better than it is today. I personally, I think we need to be double A minus. I think best in class in the world is double A minus. And I think it gives you instant recognition in a world where almost all businesses are tested by regulators. Have you attested the liquidity, the solvency, the capital value, and all of those related issues? So I think it is part of the evidence of your financial security and your value proposition. So whether we did or did think it was a good idea, I think in the modern world, you just have to be rated. Do you get frustrated that you feel that because you're a marketplace with this fantastic chain for security with a central fund guaranteeing everything else as well, do you feel that you should be AAA without them really having to look too hard? I think, um, candidly, I just don't think we've reflected the performance of someone that deserves a double A minus rating. And I'm always quite preoccupied by, you hear me talk about underlying performance. So if we set aside 10% of the combined ratio for cat losses and large risk losses, then for me, that de facto, that is the number you should work with. So if we turn up with a 95 combined operating ratio and cat and large risk losses have cost us three points, frankly, we're not making money. So I think we need to demonstrate to the rating agencies that we have control around the performance of the marketplace that will point to sustainable profitability. And I think the rating agencies have believed us. And actually, I think they feel truly vindicated with our half-year results that what they thought would happen would happen. And then, of course, we need to demonstrate that we are solvent, strong capital base, can recapitalize quickly. If we do those things well, put the right wrapper around the risk management framework, then I think we're double A minus. Massive part of your tenure has been, I suppose, the keystone of your tenure has been the reform of Lloyd's. Just over a year ago, it was Blueprint 1. And now I know that you're fresh from planning on Blueprint 2 and it's in the diary for some time in, in the next few weeks. What did you learn from Blueprint 1? If I, there were criticisms, people said there were probably too many things, too many moving parts and perhaps too much that could be delivered in one go. What have you learned from trying Blueprint 1 and giving that a go that you're feeding into the process of doing Blueprint 2? Mm. And, and maybe you can give us some points of, of what's going to be in Blueprint 2. Sure. I think, um, well, I've walked literally out of a Blueprint 2 planning meeting to come talk to you. So good news is we'll have shut blueprint two down from our point of view in good time for release and publication on 5th of November. I got accused through blueprint one of being too ambitious and I thought how can anybody accuse you of being too ambitious? That's ridiculous and in fact I'm quite happy about that you know if someone says you're sort of mealy-mouthed or uncertain or lack direction then that's a problem. So blueprint one was meant to be ambitious in itself and it was also meant to I think give the market some heart back and some belief in itself that there was a strategy, there was a direction, there was an intent to execute. And I think we did that. And I think that was good news and fantastically well supported because I think without the support of everybody, we wouldn't have had the credibility to go to Blueprint 2. 
Blueprint 2 is when the rubber hits the road, as far as I'm concerned. This is when it gets real and we set out to truly, truly transform the marketplace. It is revolution. And we're going to be very, very clear in a number of areas. It's not our job to get into placement. That's the role of the broker and the IP and the solutions that they want to create to bring business to market or possibly for the insurers. What we're really interested in doing is ensuring that when business hits our gateway, when the risk is set to be bound, we can make that as efficient as we can. So we've really worked very, very hard around data standards and we will be prescriptive around the data that we need to effectively bind a risk and manage a claim. So our belief and what we will publish in Blueprint 2 is that we can make that bind process right from bind through to the technical account, the ability to collect the money. We think we can do that in minutes. Today that takes weeks. We also think, therefore, that having created that record accurately, we can significantly re-engineer the claims processes, right from first notification of loss through to the way in which you triage and manage a claim. And that will substantially improve the lead times around the way in which claims are actually dealt with in the marketplace. And that in itself will be something quite remarkable that's not been achieved to date. So I think we've gone after the hard things. We've really looked at the full processing map of end-to-end journeys of how business lives in our marketplace place. I don't think anybody's done that for a quarter of a century. And we're really, really excited that we've got the solutions in place that can achieve the change I'm talking about and actually achieve it fully by the end of 2022. And with those data standards, are they going to be part of a cord and all that kind of thing? I'm not the world's most technical person, but I know that technical people speak about Londonisms and trying to avoid them. Would you be getting rid of those very particular London-only standards? We've called them Lloydsisms, so I think they're even worse than Londonisms, Mark, in my view. So yes, we will. And for us, we think we can get the standard data set down certainly to sub-50 data points. And with those 50 data points, we can potentially access through third-party sources another 100, possibly 120 data sources. So what you have to do is be utterly prescriptive around those standards and then by engaging with people like Accord or the placement solutions, PPL, Whitespace and others and we're agnostic as to how those placement solutions work, we will in effect, for want of a better description, kite mark those that can operate to Lloyd's data standards which will then create seamless interaction with our marketplace. So that'll remove frictionless cost. And I think genuinely begin the process of allowing the participants in the marketplace to tackle the cost burden. We can take the horse to water, but we can't make it drink. It's not our cost base. It's the cost base of the underwriter, the insurer, and it's the cost base of the broker. So if we can make the system as frictionless as possible, as quick as possible, then I think we can genuinely take cost out. And to do that, does it have to be centralised? I think it has to be. I think you have to turn around and say certain standards, certain processes have to be very prescriptive and they have to be done a certain way. If you create too much flexibility around data, you end up a little bit in the nonsense we find ourselves in today. And frankly, that goes from being contract uncertain at the outset to being unable to create the financial record at the back end that the regulator or you need simply to evidence that you're doing your business properly. So candidly, we're super excited about Blueprint 2. As I say, it is the rubber hits the road and it is where we really start to make a difference. And again, we couldn't do it without the engagement and support of all the participants in the marketplace. And life's about timing, isn't it? It's not really about whether you're good, better or best. You can have the best or be the best, but if the timing's against you, then you will fail. We feel as a team that we're lucky to be in the market today, where I think 
people want to see change. They want to see leadership and they want to see a real sense of direction. So we feel we've got all the support we need because we'll drop a few balls along the way and some experiments won't work and we'll have to stop them and start again. But I think people are with us and if they're with us, then we'll succeed. Before we get to the next question, I'm here with Zoe Bolton, the founder of Actuarial Headhunters, Bolton Associates, who have kindly supported this podcast. Zoe, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about Bolton Associates and what you can do for our listeners? Hi, Mark. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be supporting you and the Voice of Insurance. Bolton Associates recruits actuaries and analysts specifically into the general insurance market. We do not deviate from that. We work with actuaries across the industry, be they chief actuaries, CROs, CFOs, pricing, reserve and capital modelling, and the juniors looking to break into the market. This is what we do. If you know an actuary, we've probably spoken to them. We've all done this for rather a long time. Bolton Associates collectively has over 100 years of experience of this. And with the opportunities now in the MGA sector, insure tech, data science and the startups, we've never been busier. If you're looking to expand or establish your actuarial and analytics offering, you should be talking to us. At Bolton Associates, we aim to be part of the market and friends to it so we can offer our clients a real-time view of the actuarial landscape. Personally, being that advisor, startup, environment, etc. is just the best part of my job and the network is really working for that. As I said, we're, we're good at what we do because we enjoy what we do. So any actuaries, hi again, or companies looking for one, do get in touch. We're all working remotely as everybody is. The market is busier than ever and fingers crossed, let's hope we can all get back to EC3 sometime soon. Well, thank you so much, Zoe. And let's get back to the podcast. You mentioned about contract certainty there. You've recently launched another initiative about, I suppose it was 20 years ago that contract certainty after 9-11, the FSA as it was then, the regulator, wanted to require that we had contracts in place at inception. I suppose now, is it really, at the time we, we knew we had a contract, but we hadn't probably necessarily looked at what the words said inside the contract and what really was being covered and what was silent and what was not. Is, is that what you're really trying to do now is really get into rather than saying, thank you, there is a wording, but have we actually looked at what the wording says? Yeah, I'm just smiling to myself as you're asking me that question. I remember being asked to run my own syndicate in the mid-90s. And I think I was taught well. And I remember going to the reinsurance contracts. We hadn't got any wordings for our reinsurance contracts. And you just think, how scary was that? And um, I employed one of the great experts in the market for two years to ensure that we got all those wordings in place. And that was the world that we were in then. So it's easy to forget just how bad it was pre the sort of market reform contract and the requirement for a contract to be enforced. So credit to the people that thought that through and executed it. I think today it's really about clarification. So I think the reality of some of the things that we do and some of the risks that we're asked to take, it's very difficult to be simple. You know, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if you could produce that contract on two pieces of paper, but you can't. And even when you look at business insurance, classically, they could have 16 different products in an SME contract of insurance. So it's very difficult to be simple, but I think you can really clarify the intention in the wording. So when we produced our document slightly provocatively into this marketplace, it's really about clarification. And I think we've become too onerous in the way in which we present our wordings. And therefore, they become ununderstandable if there's such a word. And I think we can do an awful lot more to clarify wordings. Use modern language. Use sentences that aren't too long. Don't use the anachronisms that aren't in common speak. There are some really simple things you can do that just make the wordings understandable. So I don't think we can ever get them down onto two or three pieces of paper. Some would argue that. But I think we can be a lot, lot better in the clarification. I'm with you on the word. I never understood why do they always have to have the word whereas. And I don't know what the point of whereas is. But you be getting involved in things 
things that are done between consenting adults. And so if they want to have that wording, they can have that wording, can't they, if that's what the client wants? You know, you're not going to be prescriptive, are you? No, I don't think we can be, because I think the wording is part of the product and part of the service. So if you're one of the major conglomerates in the world, then you'll have a nuance to your business that you'd want to be reflected in the cover that's offered to you. So it would be wrong to step aside from that. But I think on some of the more commoditized business, then I think we should really challenge ourselves as to whether we're offering best-in-class wording. So what's been quite exciting about the work we've been doing is the support we've got from the Lloyd's Market Association to actually take that work forwards and see if they can't produce a wording for SMEs that is clarified and perhaps therefore simplified. So I think we have a job, and I think we do have a job centrally at Lloyd's to sort of demonstrate best practice, be prepared to be somewhat provocative on occasions, call things out, and try and bring together the various different participants in the marketplace, which we are uniquely positioned to do to solve some of the problems of the day. And sat here today, whether we like it or not, and whatever we do or don't feel, you've got every party mildly dissatisfied with the response to insurance for business. And we have to learn from that. We always remember different market wordings for the banker's blanket bond and different things. I can't remember necessarily what their NMA code number was anymore. That was a long time ago. So would you be carrying on that work of, of encouraging to ha- you know, have a standard SME wording, have a standard BBB wording and standard DNO wording, those kind of things? I think what you have to do is get as close as you can to core contract wordings but be prepared to accept that there's got to be some flexibility. So I think what you need to debate is what you really do and don't need to do. And I mean, I'll give you two examples that stick in my mind. You know, I started life, I always say as the lowest of the low, I was a motor underwriter, so I have to sort of sneak in the back door when I talk to the good and the great at the complex specialty end of the world. But now I remember when I first started out, the direct insurers decided they didn't need proposal forms. The direct insurers said they didn't need claim forms. And um, they were right. You were collecting an awful lot of information administratively and expensively. You you rarely reference back to you. So they used statement of facts. They used a different methodology. So it was quite thoughtful to say there's got to be a different way to do this. So number one for me is think differently. Yeah, number two, you know, my experience down in Australia was interesting with SME business, where we wanted to automate as much of that process as we could to drive huge efficiency, ultimate benefit to the customer because you could get a cheaper product out there. And we worked out we could automate policies. And as I say, that was my example of 16 different components in a policy. Policies up to $150,000 of premium could be auto-rated, auto-managed. And that included delegated authority to brokers in certain instances to manage claims. It drove efficiency. It drove a significant improvement in performance for the underwriter. And it drove a value proposition for the customer because you could make the product cheaper. So I think there's no harm in taking a step back and challenging yourself as to why you do things the way you do. Which sort of goes to the heart of Blueprint 2. You just can't carry on doing things the way you always have done. There's got to be ways to get better and improve. Now we've got quite a lot of progress on lead follow and automated syndicates or or syndicates certainly have that intention to be more automated and perhaps algorithmic and controlled. What sort of percentage do you think of Lloyd's business in five or 10 years time might be written on an automated basis as a following syndicate, for example? Oh, Mark, 50%. You know, I think it's a big number. Would that actually be a target of yours? I don't think it's a target. You know, I I think there are four different ways of placing business at Lloyd's. There's open market, the complex end, which I think will always need to exist. And we've got to drive efficiency through the placement and buying processes there. Treaty reinsurance, different, isn't it? That needs its own unique ways of doing business. And then you get to the sort of automated track, 
which is either what we call cover holder business or the world calls MGAs, which in effect is a form of delegation of authority. It's a form of follow, isn't it? You're allowing people to operate with your capital. Or you've got true business where a proportion of the risk ought to be able to use artificial intelligence and algorithms to support the capacity of leaders. And it could be the leaders, related parties and third party capital that does that. And I think that's a good thing because it drives efficiency through the process. It ought to take the cost of doing business down very, very significantly. And, you know, the downside to that, some people would say, was there'll be winners and losers. That's life. There are winners and losers always. And if you haven't got a value proposition to represent yourself as a leader, then think about how you might be a follower. And I think we'll see some smart insurers do both and do both well. And Brit with the key syndicate are doing that, I think. They're turning around and saying, do you know what, we've got great expertise in certain lines of business to lead. And why don't we focus our attention on that? We think we can be digitally and algorithmically smart on follow business. And we've got a different way of doing that. So I'm dead excited about what they're doing. And back to my opening statement, I think within five years, we we should see 50% of the market digitally, electronically, or algorithmically, or automated in the way in which business is underwritten and managed. Prudentially, does it scale though? In that you know, we've got someone could put a fifty million dollar lead line down, but the, with all this automatic follow behind it, it could be a billion dollar line before tea time. Yeah, I, do, do you know, I think um, the advantage actually is that because there's so much intelligence that's going in, artificial intelligence that's going into the follow placement, the data is more immediately available. So I think if you look at these businesses that are establishing themselves, they can give you real-time data, probably on a daily basis, as to what lines they've written, what shares they've got, what aggregate exposure they've generated, that many of the market today probably can only give you quarterly. So I think prudentially, you can actually capture much more immediate data. So if and when things go wrong, and of course they will, you can dive in a lot more quickly than you do today. So I think it puts a bit of pressure on us to have the right systems in place to ensure that we're capturing the right data. But in itself, I think you could be better off from a prudential perspective. Because those second and third and fourth pairs of eyes will all flash up red if the manual lead underwriter makes a mistake. Actually, the algorithm is going to be better at picking up than anyone else. Uh, I totally agree with that. And I think the thing that we should remember here is, of course, you know, the strategy, the underwriting direction is set by a human being, not set by the computer. The computer is just operating within the constraints that the humans allowed it to. So in itself, it can't go off track. So all that can happen is the leader, for some reason, hasn't committed the risk in the way in which you'd uh, hope they would. So you think that, yeah, most likely they just wouldn't get the follow, the lines just wouldn't appear, that the, what they'd expect all the automatic facility, but they'll flash up red and say, actually, you probably have a look at this again because you probably get it wrong. The, the only thing that stresses me out in a marketplace really is I think you need to make a price, not take a price. And I think some of the problems that we've encountered in the market around follow has been because people have taken price rather than made price. If you don't know at the outset, when you sit down an underwriting box or behind your desk or behind your screen, what your logic strategically is as to what business you want to write, what price you want to set for it, what criteria will allow you to write a risk, then you're in trouble and so are we. So I think when people sort of feel nervous about the automation, all those things are being done. The automated activity is making a price. It has determined at what price it is prepared to commit and why. So in a way, it does go to the heart of the automation of the, of the good manual underwriter. Do you ever think that with all that billions and billions of dollars of deal flow then automated, you could then package that up in some way and send it into far more liquid financial markets that are outside our doors? Absolutely. And I, and I think some of the great underwriters 
we see today do actually decide what they want to take for their own account and what they want to manage on behalf of third parties. And, you know, I think that's something Bermuda's done really, really well. You know, when I look at some of the real class acts that have come out of Bermuda, whether it's an arch or a Renaissance Re or Validus that's ended up in ARG. I mean, they really did think Nefila today. They really did think very, very smartly about the risks that they wanted to retain for their own account and where they could get third-party capital and act on their behalf and earn risk-free income. So very, very smart in the way in which they set their businesses up. And the same would be true of lead follow. You know, if it's automated follow, then some of that will be third-party capital. It could be ILS, could be pension funds, could be different types of structure. And more of that must come, mustn't it? You know, look look out in 2021 and... It's hard, isn't it? Where are you going to invest your money? We'll probably see negative interest rates in the UK for the first time. So I think capital is going to be thinking quite deeply about where it might want to go. And, you know, if we can demonstrate back to the start that we have a marketplace that has the framework to perform, then we'll be an attractive place for capital to want to reside. And you see it as your role to help facilitate all of that, to give someone who perhaps a low return investor, give them the sort of spread that they, they would expect. Absolutely right. And, you know, I think you've sort of seen that with some of the talent that we wanted to bring into the marketplace. Someone like Burkhard Kieser coming in as our CFO, super smart in terms of his understanding of capital, capital management, capital flow. You know, people sit in front of me and say, you're putting the cost of capital up at Lloyd's. I think you've got to be kidding me. The weighted average cost of capital at Lloyd's is significantly lower than anywhere else in the world. Half of the capital is allowed to be supported by letters of credit. No one else allows that to happen as tier two capital. We do. So I think it is a very capital friendly market. And of course, let's remind ourselves, people get confused that the capital they put up is the money they have at risk. It's got nothing to do with that. The capital you put up is to demonstrate the solvency of the marketplace. It is already earning you money. So it it has the opportunity to earn again. So look at the efficiencies and the drive and the opportunity and the show of business at Lloyd's. And it's a fantastic place to consider investing if you've already chosen to invest an element of your capital in insurance. It's been a hell of a year for rediscovering systemic risk. Mm. How's um, this year of extremes affected Lloyd's understanding of and or appetite for systemic risks? We've talked about it a bit, haven't we? And I hope that there is opportunity for us sort of coming through the crisis that we've come through. And as I said earlier on, I, I think we're staring down the barrel of a recession, the like of which we will have never seen. It's incredibly uneven, it's very bumpy, and there are winners and losers. I think the insurance industry, ironically, and we should probably say this quietly, has the chance to be a winner. Because we've not really been able to translate the value proposition of intangible risks through to the customer. You know, we all talk about cyber insurance. We've been selling IP insurance for 15 years. No one flipping buys it. So whatever we say and think about a modern business and all of the intangible assets that they're grappling with that they don't know how to insure, no one's bought the cover. So we've got an opportunity, I think, to really dig under that cover, whether it's a systemic risk on a macro level that you have a conversation with government or the micro systemic risk that we can talk to insurance managers about. I think we've got a fantastic opportunity to translate a whole different set of products and services, which I think is the real risk that business faces today, and really get after selling those types of covers. So I think there's an opportunity at this point, starting with education with the customer, through to translating a different understanding of systemic risk or intangible risk, and actually creating a different policy set to that we sell, we sell today. And how's it going on things that are, where you don't have to collaborate or rely on governments, but for a Lloyd's-only product for a solution for SMEs, micro-SMEs, to give them a meaningful pandemic BI cover, for example? I know that project's in hand. How's that going? Yeah, it is. 
We're playing at both ends of the spectrum and the market's flipping hard dealing with government at the moment. You know, they struggle to get their heads out of Tuesday week. So, you know, when you're talking medium long term, they're just not in the space yet to be able to have that conversation. So we'll keep that dialogue going because at some point we have to get there, don't we? Societally, we have to get there. At the front end, we're pushing hard on, we called it restart, which is right at the small end of SME because obviously, God, we come up with some terms, don't we? Non-damage business interruption insurance is the elegant term for it, i.e. financial loss in itself as a consequence of some form of action is the cover we're trying to provide. And they're quite small limits. We're talking about £20,000, £40,000, £50,000 loss of profits. And we think we can have a product out there to deal with the second wave of COVID and to be operable in 2021. Again, really excited about what the market's doing. So there's strong collaboration around understanding exposure and risk. Really good support from a broken community. And we've got double-digit managing agents interested in determining if they can write the cover. So I think we'll have something. The question is, can we get a product at an inflection and price point that an underwriter thinks they can make money and at a point a customer thinks they can afford to buy it? So that's the ultimate challenge. It would be covering, it's not covering this pre-existing condition. No. It is covering it or not? No, it would cover a second wave. It's the classic, isn't it? You know, you, there's very few insurances you can buy in the middle of a loss. So it would be a bit like offering insurance for your house at the point that it's on fire. So I don't think we could do it now. But we could, stepping into 2021, begin to offer a cover. But a, I mean, a, a different mutation, a different virus, or it would, have, it would still be COVID-19. It could be COVID-19. It could be a second wave of COVID-19. And you know what the teams are looking at at the moment is exactly the problem that people are likely to encounter, where you've got a regional lockdown or a localized lockdown. You know, we've just seen announced today, haven't we? As ever, Scotland does something different to, to England. England's got three tiers. Scotland's about to have five. So there could be very different circumstances where some sort of pecuniary loss is incurred. And can we provide that type of cover? Our thesis is we can. And I would hope that we'll have a product um, up and running in 2021. Another big part of your tenure has been the work on culture change in the London market that you've been leading with the big culture survey for the first time. We've had some recent high-profile sanctions of senior executives in this global industry that we're all part of. Is that proof that work on changing insurance industry culture is really working? Or is it just evidence that there's so much more to do and nothing's really changed? I think a lot has changed. I think we felt in London that we'd been slower to change than most. And I've told the story to a few, really. I, you know, I remember very vividly going down to live in Australia late 2010, culturally being unprepared or underprepared. Some of the agenda items of the country I should have understood. I mean, some of the challenges we've got around the climate agenda at the moment, Australia was talking about 10 years ago, very comprehensively. But one that challenged me because I hadn't expected it was the federal government in Australia had mandated gender parity in the workplace. And um, we all had to think quite deeply about what that meant. The good news was that coming back to London and seeing you know, the challenges that um, we had here around gender, and goodness me, they were forcibly put in front of us with the Bloomberg articles last March. In a way, I felt good, not good that the problems were here, but good that we could put culture front and center, parapazoo with performance and strategy modernization. And I'm not one of those people that thinks cultural is a generational change. Culture is the same as everything. If you want to make the change, you'll make it happen. It will happen. And I think we've shown that with gender. And why did we start with gender? Actually, because the first survey that you spoke about told us that we were in a shocking state. So... Some people might be disappointed with the targets we put out for gender in the marketplace, but hey, we put targets out there and we will lead the way. From the corporation, we are at parity and we've made that change within two years and we are so much better for it. And 
frankly, when we see the discussion and the voice being raised around systemic racism in society, you do feel very humble and very disappointed in yourself that you're part of a society that has allowed this to happen to happen for too long. So does that mean we should stand up and ensure that we create fair representation for our black colleagues and colleagues from minority ethnic backgrounds? Absolutely. And I think getting that right means we will succeed. Getting that right means we have a future and then the next generation will be super excited, as excited as I am about working in insurance. So, so I'm sad that we have the challenge, but I relish the challenge and the opportunity to set the right tone for culture as much as anything else we're doing. You mentioned about climate change there and there has been quite a lot of movement from the insurance industry and from reinsurers about insurance and reinsurance of coal mining and perhaps coal-fired power stations and there's a big ecological movement to pressure group called Unfriend Coal which is putting a lot of pressure there on is. on Lloyds as well as others. I know there have been protests outside this building haven't there? I have yeah. So if you're really serious about climate change and the sort of good reputation of, of the Lloyds franchise, do you think you should mandate that we can't be insuring coal industry anymore? Yeah. Goodness me, we have some challenges, don't we, Mark? <laughs> I think, in a way, I like the protesters. I think it's super important that they protest and continue to do so. And I hope they shout and shout loudly for a long time to come. They have an advantage over us in that they can be absolute in their view. We really can't because, you know, when you get into the realities of what you're trying to do, life's just not that simple. But I do think you need their voice because their voice ensures that you must pay attention. Later this year, and there's not much of this year to go, Lloyd's will produce its first sustainability report. And within that, we'll look at responsible underwriting, we'll look at responsible investments, we'll look about the operational efficiency and effectiveness that we'll get, and of course it also goes to culture. So yes, as part of that, we'll think quite deeply about underwriting, underwriting risk, and what decisions we should make around certain types of risks and how we can address and support those businesses. And I think it is about supporting those businesses because I don't think even if you look at the big oil and gas manufacturers and operators in the world today I mean they are recognizing how they have to change and how quickly they have to change so it is actually about working with them to a pretty tight time frame to get to where we all want to get to so yes it is very much part of our thinking we've had a couple of working sessions with Lloyd's Council this year on it and hence you'll see probably early December maybe some discussions beforehand around our intentions around some underwriting decisions that we intend to make as well. So you're not really of the view that you just leave all this to the politicians? I don't think you can. To be fair to the politicians, it's very difficult for them to make this type of change without the support of business and industry. And I think in financial services, because we underpin some of the infrastructure that supports these businesses, we have a role to play. But I think you need to do it thoughtfully and constructively and with a common goal. And that's really what we'll try and do is to create the right alignment measures and the right checks and balances to ensure that we're creating a world actually now, but in 2030, 2040, 2050 that we all want to live in. John, I want to ask you a generic question, actually, about what you see as the fundamental attributes of the best underwriters. And then what would you plan to do to engender and foster those skills in the Lloyd's market? I think with um, an underwriter... I'm sort of stretching back in my memory to my days when I used to underwrite probably badly as those that will remember at the time. If you made money in, in, in motor, you should, you you should be, be okay. You should be all right. And for me, I, I think I worked out very quickly, there's no such thing as an underwriting god. They do not exist. So that is not the way in which things work. I, I think a good underwriter is a really good method actor. You have to be very 
prescriptive around what you do, why you do it, and how you do it. So I think you need to be fundamentally in your understanding of what you're prepared to do. As I was saying earlier on, what price you're prepared to do it at. Really solid in terms of the data you need to capture, and then in your understanding of risk and your management of the portfolio. So I think it is very method-oriented, very deliberate. And I think underwriters that fit into that bracket will be successful. I think underwriters that think it's all about relationships, all about opportunity, won't succeed. So for me, it's quite a deliberate and very precise process. And then it's about being very consistent and then good at communicating what that appetite is. I think it, it is, and, and being prepared to talk to it. And, and if you look at this point in the cycle, it's a tough point for the customer, isn't it? You know, if the customer's trying to buy financial lines insurance or DNO insurance in the US, a bit tricky at the moment, isn't it? If your rate's going up 130%. But at that time, the underwriter needs to be prepared to support the broker in front of the client and say, hey, I have been consistent. This is my perception of the risk, and this is the way in which I'm persuaded to accept the risk, but therefore price it at this level. And you've got to be prepared to listen in those circumstances, because if there is something different that you should take account of, then take account of it. So I think part of the underwriter's job is certainly not to hide at that point in time. It is to stand up and represent why you think you're adding value to the customer, irrespective of the fact that they think the price is going in the wrong direction. If they do that, then I think what will happen in the underwriting world is you'll retain that relationship, you'll retain that customer. And another truism is that the longer you have a customer, the more successful you will be in understanding that risk, pricing it and making a fair return out of it. But is that a relationship though then? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a relationship and an understanding. I think it's it's the relationship at one end, being able to connect and trust each other. But I think it's a bit of an understanding at the other, you know, really getting under the skin of the business. If you take your point one step further, we're seeing it at the moment, actually. You look at you know, the impact of COVID and it's a bit like what, what I'm saying. I think on business that you know, to the point you're making, Mark, I think retention levels are terrific. New business volumes are nowhere near where they should be. Because if you want to create a new opportunity, then I think on occasions that needs a physical connection. It needs a relationship, it needs an understanding, and it needs trust. And if you follow that to its logical conclusion, you know, people keep saying to me, is the Lloyds building that you and I sat in, is it dead? Is it finished? I think its value proposition has just gone through the roof. Because a lot of businesses will think about their urban footprints and their big city footprints, and they should have been thinking about that anyway, but they will think about that. So therefore, a location where people can meet to actually make that connection, to create that opportunity becomes more important. So what we'll do is completely reimagine the underwriting room. I'm excited about that. It is a Victorian school room. It does not need to look like that in the 21st century. So we will reimagine what this space can and should look like and what, what it can do. And I think that's exciting. So yes, a virtual world is critically important. But to the point that you're going is if you want to create new opportunities, I think that needs physical connection. You, you and I were talking before we went on, on record. You know, we are social animals. We enjoy meeting people. We enjoy being together. And business has to have that ingredient to be successful. Absolutely. I miss the uh, ginger biscuits that we've had in our uh, in, in <laughs> chocolate biscuits, you see. That, obviously, it's signs that the markets are doing much better because chocolate biscuits were out. Because I know two or three years ago, there were some of the results that we, we came to was just um, thin gruel and, and, and water <laughs> for the journalists. Bread and water. Yes. It looks like you're enjoying this. Um, are you enjoying your role? And then if you are, what, what do you enjoy most about being CEO of Lloyd's? It was an interesting time for me because I think most people's careers will be very similar. 
the, the people that I would know who would turn around and say, I planned my career meticulously, I'd struggle to get over one hand. You know, most people find themselves in situations and circumstances that dictate what the next role is or will be. So probably for the first time in maybe 25 years, I had to think about what I wanted to do next. And when it became apparent that this role was available, I really, really wanted to do the job. I felt that I had some understanding of what the day job involved. So the market would be sympathetic to me and me to them in terms of understanding what they wanted to do. And I felt that we'd let our halo slip and that a sense of direction around the three pillars that we talk about, or four actually, if you include purpose of getting performance right, having an articulate strategy, which is around setting ourselves up digitally to su succeed and getting the culture right, was things that I could understand and help and support. And, and that's really what, what I felt. And part of doing that is ensuring that we get the right talent in place here that can actually take this market on to another level. So um, I was excited to have the opportunity to do the job. Two years in, I'm still excited to have the opportunity to do the job. But I promise you one thing, I will understand when I've done my bit and it's the right time to hand over to somebody else. And um, when that happens, I'll enjoy watching that person and that team take it on to a different level. And how much has it changed? You had that idea of what it might be like and what was it really like? Were any preconceptions that were blown away quite quickly? I don't think so. I, I think, you know, because I'd always had an association with the marketplace, you know, my previous role when I was CEO of QBE, QBE has and still has a significant business at Lloyd's. So, so I had an insight. And as you get older, you do tend to know where to look. So I think the issues that we felt we needed to address are the issues that we have had to address. So no big surprises. I think the most exciting thing for me has been the support that we in the centre at Lloyds are enjoying from the marketplace because w without that support, we couldn't do anything. So starting with the market associations, both the LMA and the broker associations, Libra, they've been absolutely terrific in the way in which they've embraced the conversation and wanted to get involved. It is their market. It's certainly not my market. So them wanting to embrace the imperatives that we put out and the change that we want to promote is, is the only thing that will make it succeed. But sat here today, yeah, I'm enjoying it. And you don't really have a time frame of how once, you know, if we've got um, the combined ratio of the market overall knocking, you know, mid 80s, late 80s consistently year after year projected the same. Would you be happy then with expense ratios significantly down at some point? Did you have sort of numbers or something to say, I know the halo is back on and I can ride off into the sunset? Yeah, I think it's, um, I haven't particularly thought about um, when that day will be. I think the day will be defined by having your successors knocking on your heels. And I, and I hope we're building succession capability. So so the one thing I'll be very clear on, I would never outstay my welcome. That's I'm not made that way. So um, no one will have to say to me, oi, I'm going to stick an elbow in your ribs. You've got to go. I'll, I'll pick that moment in advance of that needing to happen. I think it's a little way away. I think I've still got a role and hopefully some value to add over what I can see as a good few years ahead to ensure that we do actually get to what I think is sustainable long-term profitability, a real value proposition. So I'll be here for a little while, I think. And at the beginning, I mean, you took over John Hancock's role. Do you think that being that underwriter's underwriter, is that a key part of the CEO having that ability to take in that role? Do you think that's something that will be one of the qualities of your successor? I think it's timing, Mark, honestly. I think um, at a given moment in time, you need a certain set of qualities, I think, to do the role. And I think they were different qualities at the time that my predecessor took the role on. I think and hope that the qualities that I bring are the ones that are needed now. Perhaps my successor will need 
a different set of qualities and the balance of the skill set might be different. So um, hard to tell, but I think at the time when I took it on, because we had quite a lot of work to do around performance, and, and actually I think also strengthening the understanding of Lloyd's value proposition within our own industry. I think some of those skills of, of understanding a bit about underwriting and certainly being connected with the marketplace was a value add. I'm sure it'll be a different mix for my successor. Obviously, Lloyd's is a broker market, always has been, probably always will be. Massive broker consolidation now in the offing. Mm. What sort of share would Aon Willis pro forma have on business into Lloyd's and, and also perhaps on the reinsurance of, yeah. of Lloyd's syndicates on the way out? Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. I remember coming into the job in 2018 and thinking, right. And would it be too big? Well, I think so 50% of the flow was in four brokers. So if you'd said to me two years later, we'll be sat here talking in that four brokers has become three, let alone two, I'd have swallowed hard. I think at a point in time, you know, having so much of the flow, and, and of course in reinsurance, the numbers are extreme. Let's remind ourselves that the red shop and the blue shop were way over those numbers anyway, even pre-Aon securing Willis. So I think at a point in time, it's okay, and I'll explain why. If it was going to be like that forever, I don't think it can be ideal. But I think markets go through cycles. There is always consolidation at different points in time. I think what it does mean is that both Aon and Marsh, for different reasons, are and will continue to raise the bar. That's net-net good, because I think it raises the bar for everybody. And actually, it creates opportunity. So out of this, we will see you know, the third, fourth, sixth, and seventh reinsurance brokers grow and grow successfully, and we will see new businesses emerge. So I'm quite relaxed that actually, if you take a sort of medium-term view, it's good for the market. I think you're about to see the same process actually go through the insurer community. It's my winners and losers theory. There are some that will come through the COVID crisis in terrific shape, and clearly you'll see some consolidation. But I think that's all part of regeneration, and regeneration's important. So um, watch it carefully, but if the right attributes come through, I think it's a good thing. But if the competition authorities uh, sent you a discreet call, what would you say? Wave it through or not? Yeah, well, I don't think... Um, it's funny, really. So I don't think they feel that way, actually, at the moment. So we'll see if they feel any differently. The good thing with our marketplace is there's enough competition around, actually. And, you know, you've seen it. So at the, at the one point that um, we see Aon and Marsh, we see Steve McGill setting up McGill & Partners. So we see a $100 million brokerage sort of established from nothing in a very short space of time. So um, I think it's quite exciting, actually, both ways around. Well, John, we've come to the end of our time, which is very sad because I could keep talking to you all afternoon, but I think you have got Lloyd's to run, so sorry about that. Um, That's all right. A much bigger job than trying to run the voice of insurance. It just remains for me to thank you for your time and your frankness, and I've really enjoyed talking to you, and we'll make sure that we put a date in the diary, perhaps sometime in 2021, to come and have a scorecard on Blueprint 2 and all the other things that have been happening in the marketplace since. So thank you so much, John. Mark, I'll look forward to catching up again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before we go... I've got James Willison, Managing Director of one of today's supporters, WCL, on the line. James, thanks for your support today. Why don't you tell us a bit about WCL and why you were keen to support this podcast? Thanks, Mark. And thank you for the opportunity today to speak to your listeners. So WCL, Web Connectivity Limited, we're a London-based software company. We were founded back in 2003. And we today work with 80 of the world's largest brokers, insurance companies and reinsurance organisations. Effectively, what we look to do is streamline core business processes and automate common tasks. So when we talk about core business processes, what are those? Placements, accounting and settlements, and claims workflow. We work with the majority of Lloyd's managing agents, 
and we support the connections to the various placing platforms, messaging with the Bureau, or indeed interaction with the claim movement messages in the London market. In addition, we actually work with a corporation. So we work with a number of solutions or provide a number of solutions where the Lloyds market are looking to move from document-centric to data-centric products. And clearly, we're looking forward to the Blueprint document, Blueprint 2, that we'll see early next month. In fact, any organisation that wants to move from working with paper to data, or indeed looks to automate any manual processes, or indeed looking to get any real business insight from the data they have available to them, then as ever, we'll be delighted to talk to them. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much, James, and good luck with everything at WCL. Thanks, Mark. It's always a pleasure to catch up. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.